Turn, please, to, again, the book of Galatians, the first chapter. Picking up this week again with verse 11. This is our ninth in a series of sermons on this book in the New Testament. And this week we return to verses 11 through 24. Let us hear the word of God. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we said last week that these verses take us to the body of the letter to the Galatian Christians. Verses 1 to 10 are an introduction where he says what his authority is and what his purpose is and what he's going to write. Now he turns to a more full development of that purpose. And as we said last week also, central to the purpose is the writing of history, the history of his own conversion and the method by which he came to believe and to teach the doctrines he's about to defend within the Galatian church. And so now beginning with verse 11, he sets up the first major part of this letter. Again, it's personal history. And it is the history of his own conversion. It's what we can call his autobiography. It's the largest section of history of Paul that we have anywhere in Scripture. And it takes up the first two chapters. You can break up the book of Galatians into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 are the first part, and that's history. Chapters 3 and 4 are the second part. It's theology. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the third part. It's ethics, or it's instructions about how we're to live our lives, given the truth of uh, doctrinal matters that he has given in chapters 3 and 4. Now, here we are in the first section of Galatians. And Paul sets out to make the point that he is not beholden to man. And particularly, he's not beholden to the apostolic leaders of the home church there in Jerusalem. For the gospel he has received and preaches is directly from God. Now, we've noted before that a very central part of the controversy that Paul is addressing among the Galatians is the question of the legitimacy of Paul's authority and of his message. What are his credentials? It's apparent that the false teachers, the false preachers that have infiltrated the Galatian church, come up among them, are saying that Paul is not faithful to the gospel, 
that he has failed to preach and to teach the entire gospel. That instead, he is trimming the gospel to suit the itching ears of the Gentiles. Well, Paul answers this by making it clear first that personalities are not the center of the issue, but doctrine. No man is to be trusted except God and His Word and His truth alone. To raise a man into a position of infallibility is idolatry. And so he goes through a list of those people who ought never to be trusted, no matter what their position is. He starts by saying that he himself is not to be trusted if he goes against the gospel. So he uses himself as the first person that has no extraordinary authority that goes beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he goes to the angels. It seems a very audacious thing to say that the angels themselves are to be accursed if they teach anything other than the gospel. But if Paul isn't, if the angels are, then certainly these other men that have come into the church and are in fact teaching things other than the gospel are not to be trusted. In fact, they're to be anathematized. And he pronounces that curse himself. Uh, I was writing something yesterday and, and I was calling other Christian leaders to stand on God's truth and not to cave in on it. And, and I had my wife read it to tell me whether or not she thought that it was okay and I ought to send it, which is a good thing you should do with any email that in any way could be interpreted as being controversial. In fact, generally, it's good not to use email for that at all. And we have a habit in this church of never using email to engage in reproof and correction unless it's absolutely necessary because you don't get facial expressions, eye contact, anything like that through email. It's a very cold medium. Well, anyhow, I had to, this in this particular occasion, I don't see these people or this man, and so when it got to the end, I said to the person, you know, now understand, in, in, in exhorting you to take this painful step, I'm not saying this separate from myself. I myself have suffered for this truth, and I call you to join me in suffering. And my wife said, well, you don't have to say that final thing. You know, that, that's needless. You don't have to call attention to yourself. Well, make no mistake about it that the Apostle Paul is constantly calling attention to himself. And, and, and yet, it's very clear he's not doing this to make himself look great in their eyes. But the Apostle Paul is doing this because he knows it's impossible ever to separate the message from the messenger. You can't do that. And so you just see the weaving of his personality and his, his claims of integrity all through the, the book of Galatians. It's just constant. You can't get away from it. That's why you have a full third of the book given over to it, or a quarter. But what's interesting is he makes it clear that if he falls to the side, they are not to fall to the side, but they're to continue to go towards the gospel. In other words, the point is not for Paul creating a following. That has nothing to do with it. The point is that as they follow him, they will be receiving the true gospel. And so he goes on and says, now you must follow me. All right, And this is what's going on. And he says, okay, I'm being accused of trimming. You know, the, I, I mentioned last week, and you'll probably have to learn this in this congregation, that when I say trimming, I'm referring to the habit with old coins, which actually had some reality. Currency used to have a direct connection to uh, precious metals, and at any time you could take your country's currency and turn it in and get the precious metals. But now our government trims every year a little bit, year after year after year, but because the government does it, we don't call it stealing. If a counterfeiter did it, we would. All right? 
And that trimming is a good analogy for what Paul was being accused of doing in, in the book of Galatians. That he was taking off a little bit of the value, you know, biting off the edge a whole way around the precious metal coin so that it was a slightly less precious metal than it had been when he got it, but nevertheless currency. Nevertheless, most stores he could go into and hand the coin in and, and, and people would accept it for what it claimed to be, what the image was on, you know, that it's a 10-cent piece or a 25-cent piece or something like that. You know, in other words, it's gospel. Yeah, there, there are a few things that are corrupted, a few things that are trimmed, taken off, but it's the gospel. In other words, it's Jesus Christ and circumcision. And it doesn't seem to be much of a trimming. I mean, you add a little bit of law, and it doesn't seem like you've taken off much of the gospel. You know, yes, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to believe in the cross. You need to believe in the substitutionary atonement that Jesus put himself in our place before the throne of God and took upon himself the wrath of God against our ungodliness. And that as we look to him, we are saved. As we place our faith in that sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, we are transferred from death to life. That's the gospel. But we all know that God from eternity past at the beginning of the salvation account with Abraham, we know that God has decreed that, that we are to be a people that are set apart. And we all know that central to being set apart is being circumcised. You know, look at the way God has been dealing with the Israelites. For century after century, they have had to cut their sons. And so you can't expect to simply come, you know, uh, boldly to uh, the cross of Jesus Christ and not go through the pain that we and our fathers and our grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers went through back to Abraham. I mean, you know, come on, you Johnny-come-latelys. Let's pay a little deference to those of us that have been here suffering for generation after generation. It's not just free grace. You know, there's, there are certain disciplines you have to undergo. And, and right at the beginning, the discipline of circumcision. It doesn't seem like much of a threat. And this guy, the Apostle Paul, you know, he's telling you that you don't have to be circumcised, but don't believe him. Look at Timothy. You know, Timothy's his protege, his, his disciple. And, and he had Timothy circumcised. So, listen, Paul's good as far as he goes, but he doesn't go far enough. You have to have the cross and you have to have the law. And when you have the cross and the law perfectly you know, melded together, there you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got the old covenant, you've got the new covenant. It all comes together in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ doesn't wipe out circumcision. Well, what does the Apostle Paul says? He says, look, uh, what I'm preaching is the true gospel. If anybody gives you anything other than this gospel, this specific gospel, which is the cross alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, all right, then let them be anathema. As a matter of fact, if I give you, as a matter of fact, if an angel gives you, as a matter of fact, if anybody gives you anything other than that, let them be damned. This is what the Apostle Paul is writing. And he says, now, Tell me, am I trying to please you? Am I scratching your ears? You know, is this the kind of language that causes you to feel that you're in a very spiritual environment and that you're being uplifted? You know, let him be damned. The angels, let him be damned. Now, am I trying to scratch your ears? Is that what I'm doing? 
Well, even if they agreed with him at that point, what would they say? They'd say, no, I don't think so. This isn't the language for the parlor. You know, I don't think that you're trying to scratch our ears. As a matter of fact, I don't think you know where our ears are itching. I mean, whose ears have ever itched to have a preacher get up and say, if anybody gives you any gospel other than this, even if an angel, let him be damned. I say it again, let him be damned. Let him be damned. Let him be damned. And we go, <laughs> You know, nobody wants a preacher to get up and say such things. It makes him into a little man. And nobody wants a preacher as a little man. They want a preacher that's bold in grace and mercy. <laughs> Let him be damned. I mean, do you hear the dissonance? Your ears never itch for that. Unless you're a completely crusty... Um, oh, what are the words? Uh, curmudgeon. He says, verse 10, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying, trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. What a beautiful statement. That this preacher, and that's all he is, he's a preacher, an apostolic preacher, that this preacher says, look, I'm not in this to serve you, to itch you, to scratch you. I'm here to serve the one that is my master. I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave of his. And I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And all of a sudden, the whole congregation breathes a sigh of relief and says, Ah, we can trust him. We can trust him. But he's not convinced that they're with him yet. And so he goes on in verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Now, this is what he's saying over and over again in different ways. If you go back to verse 1 of the same chapter, it says, Paul, an apostle, what? Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so Paul declares right at the beginning of his letter, and then again here, that the good news about Jesus Christ, because gospel, the word, simply means good news. This good news is not of man, but of God. And everything he now proceeds to say is only a reinforcement of this first statement. He did not come up with this gospel. He did not invent it. He received it. And he didn't receive it from any man, not even from the apostles at the home church in Jerusalem, especially not from those apostles, but from God himself. Now, normally, instruction is received from man, whether a teacher, a professor, a father, or a mother. And normally there's no claim to the contrary. And Paul himself was the product of this. Paul had grown up in the Jewish tradition where uh, instruction came with footnotes. And the Apostle Paul would have been known by all the Jews to have gone so high in that system that he ended up being a student of the top rabbi of the Jewish nation at the time, Gamaliel. And so nobody would have been as good at, as Paul would have been at putting together all of the traditions, you know, being able to cite all the proper authorities, being able to talk about, you know, going back centuries and centuries, what all the teachers, or as they called them, the rabbis, had to say about this and this and this. He could open the Bible almost to any place, and he could read the actual text of Scripture, and then he could recite the oral 
tradition concerning that scripture. In other words, the Apostle Paul didn't need to be like me who has a computer and it has the ability of putting in parallel all the commentators with whatever verse I'm looking at and then I can just read them. The Apostle Paul could cite them. It wasn't enough for them to have the knowledge of where to look. He had internalized all of this oral tradition. So if anybody had the ability of saying that he stood in the line of the Jewish authorities and rabbis, Paul could say that. But Paul explicitly says, look, I'm not here building footnotes and citations. I'm not doing a bibliography. I am saying that I was given this message directly by Jesus Christ, directly from God himself. And one of the ways he says this is by showing how completely contrary to all of his former life this message is that he's now preaching. In other words, he shows that there's a radical disjunction between this gospel he's now preaching and everything his life ever was before. Everything his life ever was before perfectly conforms itself to the emphasis of the false preachers in Galatia at this time. Namely, that they the Christian Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, must go back and recover their Jewish roots. All right? Everything Paul's life had been up until the point where God revealed himself to him in Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Everything his life had, be, had been up until that point perfectly conformed to this emphasis of bringing back into Christianity Judaism, bringing back circumcision, bringing back the law. All right? And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, you know, I, I know this game. I invented it. If anybody has, he says in Philippians, the ability of taking uh, pride in, in, in these former works of, of the law, he says, you know, I'm it par excellence. You know, nobody's done it better than, than I did it. But I consider it, and the word is uh, excrement, but that's a circumlocution, a euphemism. He says, now I consider all of that, and you know what the word is. And so here the Apostle Paul again is doing exactly the same thing. He's saying, look, I was a master at this, but what happened? He says in verse 12, I received this gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this word revelation is uh, the Greek word uh, apocalypse. Uh, it's the the word that we use to refer to uh, the last book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation. The word revelation is the word apocalypse. That's what it means. And he received it as a revelation or an apocalypse from Jesus Christ, a laying bare, an unveiling. And we need to see this here, that the Apostle Paul, in, in putting aside all this former life and turning to this gospel, that the Apostle Paul is making an explicit claim that the only reason he turned was not because through all of his study and hard work he finally came to understand the Old Testament the way it really was. In other words, it's not a claim that he was a better student than anyone else and saw the message hidden and finally understood who Jesus was. But he doesn't say that. He says he received it as what? Not a function of his study, but what? He says, I received it as a revelation. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it, verse 12, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, do you remember when another apostle, Peter, was confessing his faith in Jesus Christ 
Do you remember what it was that was said at that time when he did confess this faith? You remember Peter was standing in front of our Lord and our Lord said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And the disciples, some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets, they responded. But Jesus again said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then right after this, Jesus said to him, to Simon Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because what? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This was not an apocalypse from man, a revelation, but it came from God. And you know, you see this message all through the New Testament. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that what? By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into what? The mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Now, it's not just Paul that writes in the New Testament epistles, but Peter himself also speaks of the Gospel in this way. In 1 Peter 1.10-13 we read, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who what? Preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. In other words, when we receive the preaching of the gospel, we receive a thing that angels have a deep desire to look on, to gaze upon. And then he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we must never forget that the gospel is and always will be a revelation of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of men. No matter how sincerely the word is preached, no matter how zealously we give a reason for the hope that's within us, no matter how faithfully we call sinners to faith and repentance, it is God that must open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and breathe life into the valley of dry bones. Only God can change a sinner's heart. Only God gives the gift of faith and thereby eternal life. In 1 John 4.19, we are told that we love because He first loved us. And who is a better example of this truth than the Apostle Paul? In Acts 26, he is listing all of the evil things he used to do 
He says, when they were being put to death, referring to the early Christians, I cast my vote against them. Verse 11, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And then he says this, he says, while so engaged, in other words, at the very time I was doing these things, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, in other words, to continue to do these things, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me. And those who were journeying with me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this is exactly what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 1. The same theme is struck that God directly worked in his heart, revealing to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John 15:16, we see a direct statement about the nature of God's work in our hearts from our Lord Himself, Jesus, who says this. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Now, in this text, it's not speaking generally of God's choice of souls to be saved, although that is also said all through Scripture. But here it's speaking about those that Jesus chose. After his praying all night, he selected the disciples, and they became the apostles, and he chose them to do the work of preaching the gospel. And so he's saying to them something that's very comforting as they go into this work, namely, he chose them for this work. They have a commission from him. They have the privilege of knowing that it wasn't an accident that they fell into this work. Paul says, I neither received it from men, verse 12, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Verse 15, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And so here we have it. I didn't receive it from men. I didn't receive it from man. It's from God. It's from God. It's from God. Remember what I was doing. I was opposing this gospel. I was killing. I was casting my vote to have killed. I was seeking to solicit the blasphemy of Christians. I was commissioned and on my way to do it again when God called me, when God chose me, when God revealed himself to me. And then he says, now, he says, this did not happen at that time by accident either, but God had chosen me, had selected me, had called me from my mother's womb. Now, what's going on here? Is Paul saying that there's something um, superstitiously supernatural about the womb of a woman? 
that has a child inside. That that's where God chooses to do his work. Because, you know, you find in Scripture again and again that that's the language that's used to refer to preachers of righteousness. Are you aware of this? If you're a student of Scripture and you hear Paul speaking here, you will immediately think of the call to Jeremiah. And you will also immediately think of the call to John the Baptist, who did what? His first proclamation to his mother of the Messiah was when he leapt in his mother's womb. And you will also think of our Lord Jesus himself. Paul says he was set apart in his mother's womb in Jeremiah 1, 4-5. Jeremiah says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying what? What did God say to Jeremiah? He said this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. A preacher of righteousness in the Old Testament set apart in his mother's womb. All right? And then Jesus, our Lord Himself, Isaiah says this about Him in Isaiah 49, beginning with verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. And here you might think, well, no, Isaiah is just like Jeremiah. It's just talking about Isaiah. The Lord called me from my mother's womb, from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has concealed me. And He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord, and again, listen, who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you what? a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so here you have Paul. What's the center of the controversy? The center of the controversy is that these Gentiles are coming in without paying the dues that the Jews had paid. In other words, that he is our Messiah now, a light to the Gentiles. But now the Gentiles and their leaders are being oppressed by the Jews who are saying, no, no, the Gospel isn't that free. You've got to come and become a Jew. And so the Apostle Paul says, listen, I have been set apart from my mother's womb. And immediately they, being students of Scripture, think, oh, I remember something about being set apart to preach the Gospel from the womb. That's what Jeremiah said. That's what Isaiah said about Jesus. As a matter of fact, doesn't it go on and say a light to the Gentiles? Now, what's the point? Is the point that there's something superstitiously supernatural about a mother's womb? No, the point is not that at all. The point is nobody can establish the moral agency of a child in a mother's womb. Nobody can say that child's in there making choices that God will honor, that Jesus has done everything except decide, and, and that you are now given the decision, which is the way all America preaches the gospel. Jesus has done everything except the one thing you must do, which is now give your heart to Jesus, which of course we are called to do and must do and can't, cannot be saved without doing. 
But it always puts the emphasis on us, whereas the Apostle Paul is constantly, in Scripture, constantly putting the emphasis on the work of God. We didn't choose him, he chose us. As a matter of fact, he chose Paul when? Back when Paul was sitting there and had nothing to do other than to consider all the claims of Jesus Christ on his life, in his mother's womb. I mean, you get the point. A mother's not sitting there thinking about all the deep thoughts her baby's having when she puts her hands on her belly. A mother's just sort of communing the only way it's possible, which is sensory touch, and hoping that somehow the warmth of her hands will extend to that little one in her womb and that that little one will know that he or she is loved. But nobody's going to talk about that child considering the claims of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is again making much of God and, and nothing of himself. Now, remember last week I had a long aside, and the aside was the meaning of the word brethren or brothers. And it was, you know, a, a long section of the sermon on what's the utility of this word brothers. It didn't seem to, it didn't seem to help our direction much. Well, I'm going to do another aside this week. I'm going to end with this aside. If the Apostle Paul is making such an effort to establish that God called him and set him apart to the work of preaching the gospel, and that this call that he received directly from God, all right, was a call that was extended to him from his mother's womb. Uh, the Greek word is koilia. And if you have any ability to hear, uh, and see, at the same time, you know what coilia means. It's guts. It's intestines. It's coils. All right? That's where our word coils comes from. And so what we see here is, in my mother's womb, which is how we say it nicely, in my mother's guts, that's where I receive the call of God. But he's not saying that that was God's initial work, because we know that the Bible speaks of God as having established from the foundation of the world, his decrees in our life. We know that we weren't all of a sudden popping into God's mind when we were in our mother's womb, but that before one day of our existence had come to be, all right, he had decreed every single breath that we would take. And we take breaths in our mother's wombs. All right? So in other words, the point is that God's decree is absolute. And it's absolute, not just in the salvation of souls, all right? Now, here comes the hook. Here's the part we don't like. It's not just absolute in the saving of souls, but it is also absolute in what? Do you, do you want to take a guess? What am I going to say? Huh? What? Well, yeah, that's a good point. It's also absolute in not going to certain men and women. And so we can never think that if we work hard enough, God will have to honor it. God does honor work. The work of testifying, the work of preaching, He honors the work of prayer. The Bible says that He is a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. But what I'm wanting to, us to, to move towards is understanding that the call of God is not just to the gospel, but the call of God is also the means by which the gospel is received. In other words, that God does not just set out to do a work, but God appoints 
the tools that he does that work by. In other words, God does not simply give to the Apostle Paul the gospel, but God gives to the Apostle Paul the calling of being a preacher of the gospel. In other words, the gospel is not all God's concerned about. God is concerned about the vessels that communicate the gospel. In other words, God is not a 20th century evangelical utilitarian who thinks that many of the ways of the past are older than the way, and that now with new technologies, we don't really need men to preach. What we need today is uh, women who write Bible study guides, and MP3 files on the Internet, and magazines and conventions, and cassette tapes and videotapes, and, and a whole apparatus of preaching. Of course, the one thing that gets lost is that most of that apparatus has nothing to do with men called and set apart by God to proclaim the gospel doing so. It has to do with women who are good Bible study teachers. You say, well, you know, didn't Priscilla and Aquila both join in teaching Apollos? I say, well, yeah, they did. But why such an emphasis on the call of God to the preachers of righteousness through the ages? Why is that emphasis there? And to be cheap, I can just simply say, I don't know, but it is there. And therefore, for us to say that we have the same goals as God, namely the proclamation of the gospel, the salvation of mankind, but that we have better tools to use, is impious, is rebellion. And you know what the tools are that God has appointed? The first tool that I ever learned that we despise and will not use is the tool of church discipline. You ever think of church discipline as being evangelistic? I mean, our, our hair turns up on the back of our neck when we hear that. You know? Like, no! You know, church discipline is the exact opposite of evangelism. It's something that should be hidden in a closet, like playing sardines. You know? For heaven's sakes, don't let anyone see that until they're a Christian because it would be such a scandal to them that they turn and run from the Gospel. And I say, really? 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 I'm being a little bit sarcastic here. And I'm being sarcastic because I don't think that non-Christians run from church discipline. I think it's Christians who have been trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and trimmed by good PCA pastors and elders who run from church discipline. Now, I am not saying that church discipline is the preaching of the gospel, but I am saying that I first understood my tendency to despise the tools that God has ordained in His Word as I looked at my attitude towards church discipline. And once I realized that God has not just ordained that His people are set apart and holy but that He has ordained that a tool that He is delighted to use for their setting apart and, and growing in holiness and love is the tool of church discipline. Once I began to understand that I couldn't claim to have God's goals of holiness and despise His means of church discipline, then I began to think, what other means do I despise? And I realized I despised the church. I despised officers. I despised deacons and elders. I despised pastors. I remembered that I had told my father when I first went into the ministry that what I believed would really save people was discipleship in small groups and not preaching. Huh? So do you believe that God has been pleased through all 
the history of salvation to use the preaching of God's Word. And I'll tell you something, you don't believe it. And you know how I know you don't believe it? Because I listen to you all the time talk about how you're trying to do evangelism. Those of you who are, and it's a small minority of you, and those of you who are, always show that what you really believe God will use is your personal testimony to them and your love of them. And almost never do I hear your desire to bring them under the preaching of the Word because that is God's principal method all through history of doing evangelism. And so what we end up having in evangelicalism is somebody who's intently good at self-promotion and at making everybody aware that he is a preacher of evangelism, that he is a gospel preacher, has all of you going, oh yeah, that's where I'm supposed to take people in order to be saved. Namely, Billy Graham, Louis Palau, and the names could go on. Bill Bright. All right? But the last place in the world you'd think to bring them is into your local church when the preacher is preaching, thinking that God would be pleased to do the work of regeneration in that place. Why? Because the preacher on Sunday morning doesn't stand up and say, the buses will wait, come forward. And there are certain mantras, certain sort of things that we say to each other that, that give, us the, give us the awareness, oh yes, now we're doing evangelism. And then the preacher doesn't release his statistics. Well, this last year, I can tell you that three people have come forward. Well, we don't come forward. You see, the whole apparatus of evangelicalism is set up in such a way as to say, this is evangelism, and this is the church. And I'm not sure what the church is for. I think it's to make us all feel warm and fuzzy about one another and have our children have a place they can grow up where we, they know we love them and, and they have Sunday school on VBS and we sit in the pews Sunday morning and we keep very close watch on how long the pastor preaches. <laughs> so I'm done. But the application is clear. You know, do you believe in this being anything other than your living room? Spiritually? What do you think this is? Because it's a place where the pastor is pious to show us that all, all it doesn't pay to be pious. You know, do we believe that God still is pleased to use the preaching of men set apart, ordained, hands laid on them, <laughs> all right, for the preaching or do we just share the gospel? And, and that's always how God works. Evangelistic Bible studies in dorms. You know? Similar question could be asked about baptism in the Lord's Supper. What do we believe? Do we believe that if we brought people who are not Christians here and they sat in these pews and they heard the gospel of the cross proclaimed, and then it came to the Lord's Supper. And the preacher said, now listen, those of you who do not believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, you may not come to this table. Do we believe that could be evangelistic? That if we don't believe in Jesus Christ, this table is not for them. Is that evangelistic? Have you ever seen a celebration of the Lord's Supper at a Billy Graham crusade? 
No. And you commend Billy Graham for that. But on the other hand, how is it that we've compartmentalized evangelism? So that's what you do at a crusade, a big theater, where you can have the rush of all those counselors going first and then you follow them. And how is it we don't believe that my fencing of this table is the most wonderful message of the gospel to non-Christians, namely that they may come to this table and eat the body and drink the blood of our Lord. Remember, he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you shall have no part in me. Okay? That they may come the moment they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be seductive? I mean, isn't this kind of a little bit like having a skylight into the Bailey family table at lunch on Sunday? <laughs> okay? And you, you, you know you're not allowed in there because you're not a Christian, but you look and you see the joy and the laughter and you see the food and you say, I want that. And they look up and they say, we would love to have you here, but you must pass through the cross. And they say, out of the darkness and night, Jesus, I come. If the elders could come so that we who are believers may take part in this Lord's Supper. I'm going to read the words of institution as they're given us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I have received...